All right, good morning. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 13. Our text will be in chapter 14, but we're going to get a running start at it. If you're new with us today, we're in a series through the seven I am's uh, statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. We began weeks ago where Jesus said, I am the bread of life, the essential food or sustenance for eternal life. I am the light of the world, he said, the one who brings enlightenment, clarity in the midst of darkness. He said, I am the door. I am the access point to salvation and to abundant life. He said, I am the good shepherd, the great and the loving leader of his sheep. Last week we looked at I am the resurrection and the life, the one who can raise us from the dead and give us life eternal. This morning, we will see him affirm, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, next week, I am the vine. These are powerful statements of Christ. And just as we sang... What a powerful name it is. In John chapter 13, verse 31 and following, Jesus is about to leave. He has been with his disciples now for about three years. And events have been set in motion of his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. It's all coming and it's all coming very quickly. In verse 31, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately, soon. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. I believe this is a reference to Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and then his ascension back into heaven. I'm with you just a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. In the meantime, verse 34, 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. So in verse 33, I'm with you a little while longer. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 36, where I go, You cannot follow me now. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm going away. And where I'm going... You cannot come. 
And it's in this context that their hearts were troubled. Verse, chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled in light of the fact that I'm leaving. And where I'm going, you cannot come. Don't be troubled. They had been with him for three years. They had enjoyed the fellowship with Jesus. They had heard his public preaching and they had watched his miracles. Beyond that, they had the incredible privilege of private time with Christ. As he would give them instruction that he didn't even give to the multitudes. No doubt each one of these disciples had some one-on-one time with Jesus. And not to mention all the times just hanging out over a meal, around a campfire, taking walks. They enjoyed Christ, and his presence must have been something special. One of the disciples in this gospel earlier said, we beheld his glory. He was full of grace and truth. He would have been something to have been with. So their hearts are troubled at this. That he's going away. And yet Jesus is going to comfort the troubled hearts of his people with the prospect of a heavenly home in company with Christ. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Trust God. These things are not working out as we expected them. You're talking about leaving us. Trust God. Love the old hymn that says, His purposes are ripening fast, unfolding every hour. He's in control. Nothing about this is taking Him by surprise. This is all according to plan. And while we might not understand it, we're to trust Him. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Where is he going? He is going, in his words, to the Father's house. Along with others, I think this is a simple metaphor for the presence of God the Father. Jesus will go to the cross. He will die for the sins of his people. His Father will raise him from the dead. And then he will ascend back into the Father's presence. And to speak of a house is to speak of family. The Son is going back to his Father. Into his presence. And a Father is is one who loves And a father is one who protects. And a father is one who provides. And a father is one who leads. Jesus says, I'm going back to my father. And there in my father's house are many dwelling places. Guys, don't let your hearts be troubled. During this period of time in which I am personally gone, I'm going away to my father's house, and there, there's plenty of room for all of God's children. There are many 
dwelling places. There is plenty of room. None of God's children will be left out. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you. I think this speaks to the love of Christ for all of his people. His care and concern for each and every one of us. He has gone to the Father's house where there are many places to prepare a place for each and every one of his people. As much as anyone, I like watching Fixer Upper. I like watching Chip and Joanna Gaines. Chip just, I just roll. So does Tara and Macy. We just enjoy watching Fixer Upper, where they take sometimes a dilapidated place or just an outdated place and they fix it up. And they fix it up looking real nice and real cool. And generally to the taste and the hopes and the wants of the owner. It's an awesome show. Wish I could do that kind of stuff. But what Jesus is talking about is even better. He's not going to some dilapidated dwelling place in heaven to fix it up. He is preparing it, if you will, from the ground up with you in mind. It's going to be tailor-made to his people. going home to my father and don't let your heart be troubled there's room for you too and I'm preparing it for you and I'm going to come verse 3 if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Proverbs talks about the sluggard, the lazy man who does not finish what he starts. I love this proverb. A lazy man does not roast his prey, but the precious possession of a man is diligence. The lazy man has enough gumption to go out and kill his prey, but then he's so lazy he doesn't roast it. He doesn't finish what he starts. Well, Jesus always finishes what he starts. I'm going away, preparing a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. This is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, we've been looking at some of this in our Friday morning men's study as we're studying through 2 Thessalonians, the end times and the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus and those sorts of things. Some of you may believe in a pre-trib rapture of the church. But there's a seven, We're getting off the tangent, but this is fun stuff. So there's a seven-year tribulation to come. And before that tribulation, there's going to be a rapture of the church. That Jesus Christ is going to come and take his people home. If that's your theological conviction, this is then probably what Jesus is referring to, if indeed that understanding is right. I will come again and I will receive you to myself. I will take you up into heaven. Others of us see a seven-year tribulation coming, but not necessarily a pre-trib rapture of the church, but rather after the tribulation, 
Christ will come. We will meet him in the air and, and come down with him to establish his kingdom on the earth. The second coming of Christ. As I told the guys Friday morning, I woke up on the right side of the bed that particular morning. And so that's my conviction of that day. I'm not so sure sometimes. We have others within the, our fellowship who are all millennial, who don't even who see it differently. All of us believe, though, all of us, and we like to say whether you're on-mill, pre-mill, post-mill, or pan-mill, it's all going to pan out in the end. Whether you're on-mill, pre-mill, post-mill, pan-mill, you believe the book, Jesus Christ is coming again. And he's going to take his people to be with him forever. In his company. Where I am, there you may be also. The company that they enjoyed with him, they will enjoy again. And you and I did not have the privilege of being with Jesus during his three years upon the earth. We are called blessed in the New Testament. We did not see and yet still believe. But we will have the privilege of this company with Christ. When he comes again to take all of his people. To be with him. And so Jesus comforts the troubled hearts of his people with a prospect, the assured prospect of a heavenly home in the company of Christ. Don't be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. Following Jesus in these days, in this period of time between his ascension into heaven and his second coming, is not easy. It's difficult. It's much more difficult for some of our brothers and sisters around the world. It has been much more difficult for many who have already come and gone. But following Christ in this age, the Apostle Paul said, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so the prospect of living in this age apart from Christ with its ups and downs, its hardships can be troubling. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus said. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I've gone to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. It's the hope of the Christian. Coming of Christ for his people, eternal life and fellowship with him. Jesus goes on, having comforted their hearts, their troubled hearts, to clarify their confused minds. Verse 4, he said, you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? I love this. And back over in chapter 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Thomas, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? This is encouraging, isn't it? Here's Peter, here's Thomas. They're a bit confused. You ever find yourself confused? You bet. Come join us on Friday mornings, men, as we try and hash out what 2 Thessalonians 2 is all about. 
We're sometimes confused about what God's word means and the implications that it has for us. Peter wasn't sure where Jesus was going. Thomas wasn't sure where he was going or the way to how to get there. I take from this that it's okay to be confused sometimes. But what's the one thing about Peter and Thomas? Even in their confusion, they didn't go anywhere, did they? They just stayed right there with Jesus. I don't understand it. I don't get it. It's sometimes confusing, but I ain't going anywhere. I'm going to stay right here. It's like we looked at several weeks ago in John chapter 6 when Jesus was telling some hard and confusing stuff and many who had been following him, they left and went home. And Jesus said to them, his disciples, you're not going to leave also. And they said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Sometimes we don't know what you're talking about. Sometimes it's a bit confusing. But we're going to stay right here, Jesus. Some of you, I've heard from some of you, you come to Redeemer Community Church, and man, you got Mitch up there, and he's Dallas Seminary, and Matt up here in Dallas Seminary, Matt Williamson teaching that class in Dallas Seminary, and Mark Wells is teaching his class in Dallas Seminary. Man, you guys are smart. I don't know nothing. Awesome. Awesome. Everybody got where they were, or where they are, by starting where they were. Just stay. Just stay with Jesus and with his word and just keep learning. Right? Inch by inch, life's a cinch. Just a little bit and a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Well, they're confused. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus brings some clarity by affirming that he is the way. Verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We don't know where you're going. He had just said, in my Father's house, I'm going back to my heavenly Father, into His presence. And He says, no one comes to the Father. Where are you going? We don't know where you're going. That's where He was going. They didn't understand. Of course, we looking back with our Bibles, we knew where He was going. He was dying, and then He was going to rise, and then He was going back to be with His Father in heaven. They were confused. He brings some clarity. That's where I'm going. And as for the way, I am the way. I am the path. I am the approach. Very similar to Jesus in John 4 or 10. I'm the door. I'm the one you go through. I'm the, the way. I'm the path you take. I'm, I'm the one you follow. To the Father. 
the way for Jesus was the cross. The way for us is is repentant faith in Jesus. It's, It's following him. How does one get to the Father and to that heavenly home through Jesus? He's the way. The reason is because he's also the truth. I'm the way and I'm the truth. Truth is that which accords with reality. With the way things really are. And Jesus claims that he is the truth. He's the one who has come from heaven to reveal who God is and how we are reconciled to him forever. By claiming that he himself is the truth and that he is the one through whom you get to the Father, he is saying that all other approaches are There's just a few that I thought of. False way, number one. There is no afterlife to be experienced. No judgment to fear. No eternal bliss to hope for. Not according to Jesus. Not according to the book nor even the instincts of humanity the world over. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has set eternity in in the heart of every human. There's something that we just realized, there's something transient about this life. And there's an expectation of a life to come. It's only in this small sliver of Western naturalistic philosophy, naturalistic philosophy says that the natural world is all there is. There is no spiritual life, no spiritual world, no spiritual existence after this life. It's only a small sliver of the population of the world that lives in that naturalistic mindset. The Bible says that it is appointed unto a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's on the one hand. According to the Bible and according to Jesus, after one's death, there is a judgment to follow. But there's also the prospect of eternal life. Apostle Peter said this, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So that would be one false way is to believe and to bank one's life that there is no afterlife to be had. Another is that yes, there is an afterlife, but everyone goes to heaven. Not according to Jesus. He said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Some do perish. 
God does not sweep human pride and arrogance and all of our other sins under the rug. Jerry Bridges wrote a book a handful of years ago called Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. There's some big sins that we're all against, but some of us feel, well, I haven't done the big ones, so I'm good. Just a, a brief list of some of the sins that he Address a discontentment, unthankfulness, selfishness, impatience, irritability, anger, judgmentalism, envy and jealousy, sins of the tongue like gossip and slander, worldliness. Sin is a part of every one of our lives and God does not simply sweep it under the rug. Wink and say everybody gets in. Again, our Wednesday morning study, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Listen to this. Paul says, and he's talking about when Jesus Christ comes again. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. I get it that it is a popular understanding and maybe many of you hold it that at the end of the day, everyone goes to heaven not according to Jesus and His apostles. Another, well, I do believe that there is an afterlife. I do believe that there is a judgment for some and eternal life for others. I don't believe everyone goes to eternal life, to heaven. What I'll do is I'll be a good person. I'll, I'll live a righteous life so that at the end of the day when God weighs me in the balance, the good will outweigh the bad and I'll get to go to heaven. That too is false. I'll be a good or a better person and God will let me in. Not according to Jesus and his apostles. You can't be good enough. You can't improve yourself enough. One sin is enough to stain your soul and mine and each of us have committed countless sins. When we just think about Sometimes theologians talk about sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission, those are the things that we should not have done, but we did. We committed them. And then there's sins of omission. There are things that we should have did, but didn't. Omitted. The list of those for you and me would be long. There is none righteous, the Bible says, not one. And the Bible is very clear that the way is not clean up your act, do better, accumulate good things that you've done in order that at the end, hopefully, when it's all weighed out in the balance, 
your good deeds will outweigh your bad and God will say welcome and way to go. No. The Bible says of salvation, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. In another place, talking about the, the incredible grace of God that has come our way through Jesus Christ, Paul then asked the question, where then is boasting? It is excluded, he said. Another false way, there are many ways to God. Truth, not according to Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. This is in theology, it's called the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, the exclusivity of Christianity. It's an exclusive claim that in Jesus and in Jesus Christ alone is salvation this does not sit well in our pluralistic society, does it? The reality is that the other major religions of the world are exclusive as well. Islam is exclusive. Judaism is exclusive. Buddhism, Hinduism, they all make claims about reality. All make claims about the spiritual realm, the universe, us, sin, how it's dealt with, the future. And the claims are not the same. Very, very different. And so to say that all the religions are the same is just not true. Tolerance used to be defending someone's right to hold different beliefs, right? You were a tolerant person. If someone held a different belief, but, hey, I disagree with you, but I will defend your right to believe it. That's what tolerance was, or it used to be, defending someone's right to hold different beliefs. Today, in our crazy culture, it's now tolerance is affirming that all beliefs are equally valid and equally correct. Oh, that's what you believe? Cool. Valid and right for you. Valid, mine are valid and right for me, and yours are valid and right for you. This can be and is debilitating intellectually in a search for truth, in a search for what really is the way things are, that kind of tolerance just debilitates that. And it also leads, as we have seen, to great intolerance for all those who struggle to hold fast to their beliefs. So it's not easy for Christians to, to affirm 
that Jesus is making an exclusive claim here. He is. Salvation and life with the Father is found only in Him. It's based upon who He is. Jesus' exclusive claim is, is, is absolutely tied to who He is. If Jesus Christ was just simply this Jewish peasant that came on the scene, caused a stir, and got killed by the Romans, But if he is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who became a man, took on flesh in order that we might know God and that he might accomplish our salvation, if indeed that's who he is and that's what he's come to do, then Obviously, he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. Along with this, there are many ways to God. The illustration is often thrown out there that God is at the top of the mountain, and the religions of the world are all at the base of the mountain, and they're all moving up to God, and at the end of the day, they all get to God. Some of us choose Christianity, others Islam, others Buddhism, others whatever. But at the end of the day, they all lead to God. I've often thought, if that were true, and if you were God at the top of the mountain, and if there were other ways to get to you, would you have ever crucified your son? Christianity... Just one of these at the base of the mountain, heading up to the same God to which all the other religions are going as well. Christianity claims that God sent His one and only Son to be tortured and killed for the salvation of His people. If there's another way to get to Him, why would He have ever done it? Christianity is absolutely unique. It's not only, Jesus is not only making an exclusive claim based upon who he is, but in keeping with who he is, full of grace and truth, Christianity is also absolutely unique. To those who say, hey, Christianity is just, you know, it's just one of many, that are all, I say, that one rubs me the wrong way. Because Christianity is absolutely different. It seems to me, and I may be wrong, but you can place the religions of the world into a category of do. Christianity and Christianity alone, done. Over here you have to do. Christianity, it's been done. Over here is a ladder which you climb in hopes of reaching God. A ladder of moral rungs 
of doing good and better with the hopes that you reach him. Over here, Christianity says you're a sinner. You can't reach him. He'll come down the ladder in a descent of grace, mercy, and love. He'll live a life of obedience you couldn't live. He'll go to the cross and pay the penalty for what you've done. He'll rise from the dead, go back to the Father, and take all with him who will put their trust in him. Absolutely unique. Over here is law. Over here is grace. Now this one will stroke a human heart that is so bent on pride. You've got to do these things, and if you'll do them, it strokes your inner pride, and the idea is that God will clap as you enter in. Christianity, on the other hand, will not do that. It will absolutely humiliate us and say that we are sinners before a holy God, unable to earn our way. And it will demand that we humble ourselves, admit that, and rather than trust in ourselves, trust in one who came. He is the life. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. He said that I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. He said that I am the resurrection and the life. He said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is claiming that if you would have life, abundant life, eternal it is found in him. Over here, as we sang, I will boast in Christ alone. His righteousness, not my own. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's no other fount like Christ. This is why before he ascended, he said, take me and my salvation message to the ends of the earth and tell any and everyone that you can. The apostles would affirm in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And so if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, he is the wonderful way to God. It is not found in yourself. It is not found in your accomplishments, in your abilities, to earn your way. The way to the Father is through Jesus, the one who came, lived, died, rose, went back to his Father's presence, is preparing a way for his people. Turn to him. There is salvation in no other name. For those of us who 
are followers of Jesus. I want to read to you an article from John Richards. It's with the Billy Graham Center of Evangelism up at Wheaton College. It's just over one page long, so not a ton here, but listen. In today's culture, claims of exclusivity are met with the resistance of a tired toddler pushing back a plate of broccoli. Eh. This is especially true of religious claims. Religious pluralism is more palatable for Western society, and this worldview rules the day. Pluralism posits that there is more than one valid religion and that no single religion has a monopoly on truth. It asserts that there are many paths up the same mountain. Ultimately, so the claim goes, we'll all meet at the top in our respective spiritual journeys. When it comes to religion, the word exclusive is synonymous with bigot. Even worse, Christians who communicate the exclusivity of their faith are castigated and dismissed. When a religion claims to have the market cornered on divine inspiration, it's disconcerting. Our culture is more comfortable with the blind men and the elephant analogy, where each religion represents a blind man touching a different part of an elephant, never having the whole picture. It's a classic illustration among the pluralists of, of blind men coming to an elephant and one grabs the trunk and I think it's a snake and another grabs the leg and, another, and, they, they, and the idea is that we're all kind of coming to this religion thing blind. Anyway. This analogy positions those who take the pluralistic position as having the full view of the elephant. That's, the, that's where it breaks down. Because who's the one standing back taking a look and saying, well, they don't know it's an elephant. I know it's an elephant, but they don't know it's an elephant. The pluralist is the one standing back and they're the one who have all the knowledge. Ironically, this position leads to its own truth claims. In fact, the pluralism perspective finds itself steeped in the same intolerance and exclusivity that it despises and rejects. We know the truth. It's found in a little bit of every religion. Embrace it. Live it. So even the pluralist is making truth claims and calling upon all of us to embrace it and to live it. Anyone who thinks differently is closed-minded, and Christianity finds itself in the dead center of religious critics' bullseyes. Why so much antagonism toward the Christian faith? It may stem from the words of Christ. Perhaps the nine most disorienting words in Scripture are found in Jesus' words in John's Gospel. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus makes a no-doubt statement about his position and role in God's redemptive story. I'm the only shot you've got, he is essentially saying. We like choices, but when it comes to our redemption, Jesus doesn't give us any. The gospel is an exclusive message in an inclusive world. And we're called to share that exclusive Jesus with others. Truth and exclusivity are not mutually exclusive. As Walter Martin notes in his seminal work, The Kingdom of Cults, quote, Truth, by definition, is exclusive. If truth were all-inclusive, nothing would be false. End quote. Now, how might Christians best communicate this exclusivity in our religiously pluralistic context? He gives us three words of 
admonition. First, we must embrace the scandal of the gospel. The gospel is scandalous. There's no getting around it. In fact, Paul talks about this scandal in his letter to the Corinthian church. He uses the Greek word that we derive the English word scandal from in writing to the Corinthian church. He writes, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Every Christian must embrace this truth to effectively witness to others. The gospel will offend. There's no need to apologize about that or deviate from sharing the gospel in its entirety. Because of the scandalous nature of the gospel, some of our faith conversations with others won't go so well. And that's okay. Our role in the process is to plant and water gospel seeds, trusting God with the results. Second, we must serve the gospel on a full platter. Truth is always best served with a side of grace. Our culture grants exclusivity where it sees value. Apologetics, a systematic defense of one's faith, isn't about winning an argument, it's about winning hearts. If that's the case, then asserting Jesus' exclusivity might begin at the head, but it should always end at the heart. Our goal should always be to look for winsome ways to share the scandalizing truth, truth of the gospel with a broken and hurting world. Start with listening. The old axiom is true. There's a reason we have two ears and one mouth. Listen carefully to people's reasons for rejecting the Christian faith. Listen attentively without formulating your response in your head as they speak. Only then will you respond with the grace necessary to share the gospel effectively. Some of y'all would be familiar with our bless strategy. Begin with prayer. Listen as you ask good questions. Finally, the beauty of Jesus exclusivity. Ultimately, our role in sharing the gospel is showing the beauty of Jesus' exclusivity. We need to communicate this truth. We are sinful, and whether we know it or not, are desperately in need of rescue. Our only rescue is found in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful yet harsh reality. Beautiful because it provides a tangible solution to humankind's biggest issue, the sin that separates us from God. It's harsh because it forces us, through faith in Jesus, to lean on someone else to bring us back into relationship with God. Only an exclusive Jesus held out as the only way to the Father offers that. Evangelism is, a one, is one path and scandalizing. It is offensive. But it's a call of every Christian to declare this beautiful exclusivity uttered from the lips of the same Savior who declared himself to be the way, truth, and life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, your son, whom you sent to be our savior. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. I pray for any here who've never trusted in him, never turned from their own self to Christ. I pray right now, they would see the glory of Christ, the glory of who he is and what he came to do, and they would put their trust in him. And Lord, those of us who, who are believers, who have this gospel entrusted to us, who live in this pluralistic society where the exclusivity of Jesus can be not only hard to hold to, but hard to hold out to the world, Give us truth 
and give us grace. Help us hold fast to this beautiful gospel and help us to love and listen and serve as we share it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.